Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. This week marks the 52nd anniversary of the moon landings, one of the greatest achievements in the history of the United States. It's also the week that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos sent himself into space. So I thought it was time we took a look at some of the more disturbing foundations, origins of the space race. To talk us through this, we have New York Times bestselling author and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eric Lickblau back on the podcast. Eric is the author of The Nazis Next Door, How America Became a Safe Haven for Hitler's Men. And in this episode, he reveals how some of Hitler's most high-profile Nazi scientists were pivotal to the US space program. Arguably, if it wasn't for the advances of these scientists brought over to the US after the Second World War, then there would have been no one small step for man and a giant leap for mankind in 1969. But as Eric reveals, there was a dark side to the moon, as many of these advances were built on their earlier horrendous Nazi experimentation and slave labour. So here is the brilliant Eric Lickblau on Nazi scientists and the space race. Hi, Eric. It's great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing today? It's good to be here. Hot, as always, in Washington, D.C. in the summer, but getting by. Well, you're a lucky man. I'm up in Connecticut, north of New York, and it has been torrential, to say the least. It has not stopped rain. We even had a flash flood. Well, I've never had this before. I'm sure you get it a lot in America. But my phone started making this weird alert noise, like nuclear missiles were coming in. And it was saying, prepare to evacuate within one hour, flash flood warnings. The National Weather Service, yeah, you do get those. It, it is a little freaky. They still freak out me, and I've been here a few more years than you. <laughs> well, good to know I'm not the only one that gets freaked out by these. Well, it is great to have you back on the podcast. You were a hit last time. We were speaking about the Nazis next door and those 10,000 plus Nazis who were able to come and settle in the U.S., after the Second World War. And one thing you mentioned when we were chatting was about the Nazi scientists who ultimately became involved in the US space program. So I needed to know more. Take us back to the beginning of all this, Eric. When did the US start to realise that they needed to harness Nazi expertise? Well, I'm glad that whetted your appetite and happy to talk more about it. You know, the U.S. realized that even before the end of the war, there was a remarkable meeting 
that Alan Dulles, who had gone to head the CIA after the war, held in Zurich in, at the beginning of 1945, when we were still fighting the war, the end of the war still in doubt, with a top Nazi general by the name of Karl Wolf, that really went in violation of the terms of any negotiation that had been set down at Yalta by Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin, who said that there would be no negotiations with the Nazis, who at that point were already recognized to have committed perhaps the worst genocide in world history. And yet Alan Dulles, over scotch and over a fireside, crackling in a parlor room and speaking in German, in fact, with General Wolf, talked about mutual goals after the war. And in fact, General Wolf was let off quite easily after the end of the war, did not end up having to stand trial at Nuremberg, which was a bit of a mystery as to how that happened. And Alan Dulles always denied that there was any quid pro quo, that he had in any way negotiated an easy deal. But this was the beginning of discussions with Wolf's people who were based mainly out of Italy. He had top Nazi officers under his command about preparations for what was going to happen after the end of the war and the new enemy, which was Russia, which was our ally. Still at that time, as they were meeting by the fireside and talking with General Wolf, and Dulles and other like-minded intelligence officials at what was then called OSS in the United States War Department, realized that really before the Nazis had even surrendered in the spring of 1945, Stalin and the Russians were the new enemy in what would become this new Cold War, and that this would become a war not only of intelligence, but of technology. And they were desperate to grab all of the expertise they could from the Nazis. The saying went among the people like Dulles that no one hated the Russians more than the Nazis. And so, of course, they wanted to exploit that. The Russians were also anxious to exploit German technological capability. Remember that Werner von Braun had created what was really a revolutionary weaponry in the V-2 rockets using jet propulsion that had not existed before and was really leaps and bounds ahead of the Allies in that capability and had rained down rockets on London, on Antwerp, and on other Allied targets for years at that point. So it was really a race to get the German intelligence sources and German scientists, namely Werner von Braun, but others as well. I, I tell the story in my book of General Patton at the end of the war, after Germany's surrender, visiting one of the POW camps. And there was a special section of the German POW camps where some of the scientists were held in, fair to say, nicer than typical surroundings than the typical German soldier. And Patton went to them and asked whether this was von Braun, the famous Werner von Braun. And von Braun replied, Jawohl, Herr General. And Patton pulled out three cigars from his pocket and gave them to von Braun and to his scientific colleagues and congratulated them on their technological achievements and said that his people could not have done it. And soon enough, the War Department was launching what was supposed to originally be a very small operation to bring maybe a handful, maybe a dozen scientists to the United States, including von Braun, on a temporary basis to be able to exploit the, especially the rocketry capability that they had developed. And even before the war was over, this plan had mushroomed tremendously. And by the end of the war, 
there were plans to bring what became 1,600 Nazi scientists. And I say scientists really in quotes because some of them weren't even really scientists. They were people who were deeply involved in the operation of the Nazi war machinery and rockets, but some of them were just accountants. Some of them were managers who knew how to run the assembly lines. Many of them were, in fact, top scientific minds, but by no means were they all scientists of, for instance, von Braun's stature. The Russians were grabbing their share, the French and the British were also grabbing their share. The U.S., I think it's safe to say, grabbed the biggest bunch of them, even with resistance from within the U.S. government itself. And there were people who thought that this was an absolutely horrible idea, especially at the State Department, which, of course, was interested in international diplomacy more than in developing rockets. But there were people who warned that this was going to look like complicity with the Nazis, which, in effect, it was. Uh, It was going to look like giving them a pass on wartime atrocities, which, of course, it was. And it was going to look like whitewashing of the records of these men, which it also was, because under the policy that was approved by Truman himself after the war, and then later by Eisenhower when he became president four years after that, these were officially, quote unquote, not ardent Nazis, which is sort of a quaint word in hindsight. These were not the ardent Nazis, the serious hardcore Nazis, I guess was the idea. And we're left to wonder what that meant even in the bureaucratic legalese of the War Department? What did you have to do to not be a serious Nazi? Maybe you just wore the swastika, but didn't really mean it. And so that was the policy, as sort of flimsy as it seemed, even in 1945, 1946. But it was clear that this was a whitewashing. I mean, I went through many, many files of Nazi scientists who came to the U.S., who it was written out in War Department memos that essentially their direct ties and complicity with the Nazi war machinery were to be sanitized, whitewashed, if you will, when they were brought to America. Von Braun being only the leading name among those. Von Braun was directly involved in the use of slave labor camps to produce those V-2 rockets that we talked about. One in particular, a camp called Pinamunda in northeastern Germany, was a a hideous slave factory where at least 10,000, probably more prisoners of wars, not just Jews, but also French POWs, British POWs, Poles, Ukraines, were worked to death, literally, and died of starvation, of exhaustion, uh, for medical causes. And in the worst of the lot, if they were suspected of somehow messing with machinery of trying to sabotage the assembly lines where von Braun was building these V-2 rockets. They were brought to the center of this underground factory, which, by the way, the slave laborers themselves built. Um, They were brought to the center where the cranes were for moving parts from one assembly line to the other, and they were hanged as everyone else gathered around and watched as a warning to them. So von Braun was mostly in Berlin, but would visit this site often, according to testimony. And he was the one responsible for keeping the assembly lines running for making sure that they knew what specifications were needed, what changes might be needed. And he met with Hitler on a regular basis to see how many V-2 rockets would be needed that month or that quarter. And when X thousands of laborers at Pinamunda died, he would be in direct contact with the SS, which kept security at these camps, to replace those men with X thousand more laborers to build that month's supply of rockets. And 
the man who was the top scientist on the ground at Piedmont, literally living at the facility, was a man named Arthur Rudolph, who was really the day-to-day manager, almost the CEO for Werner von Braun. And he was one of the guys who came to the United States with von Braun under this operation, which was called Operation Paperclip. The name of that is interesting because what the paperclip was for in the War Department was taking their U.S. files of what these scientists would be used for and where they would be dispatched in the United States for which projects, and paperclipping that together with their Nazi files, often with their SS cards, with their photographs, and what became their whitewashed records. So these two elements of their lives were joined. Rudolph, not nearly as well known certainly today as Werner von Braun, was also quite a luminary in the space program and what became NASA in the 50s and 60s. He was heralded as one of the pioneers of the Saturn project. He won all sorts of awards. And he was the one literally in the factory who was working hand in hand with the SS to work these laborers to death. I mean, he had uh, enormous amounts of culpability personally. So there were any number of scientists like that. And then there was a whole nother side of this project of these 1600 scientists who worked on the medical side. And the one worth highlighting for you is a man who went to Texas in Operation Paperclip by the name of Hubertus Strughold, Dr. Hubertus Strughold. And it said that what Werner von Braun was to the space program in terms of sending man into space, Hubertus Strughold was in terms of keeping those pilots and astronauts alive in space because the U.S. relied on him for the medical aviation know-how to deal with the orbital pressures, to deal with the gravitational pressure, to keep men alive with the proper diet, with the proper aeronautics, et cetera, on these missions, which were unlike anything that had been done before. And what wasn't said by the U.S. government in touting the credentials of Roberta Struggle and several dozen other German doctors who came to Texas with him was that where he had learned all this about the effects of gravitational pressure and whatnot on the human body was on prisoners at Dachau. And he oversaw a medical program at Dachau out of Berlin in which children and women and prisoners at Dachau were subjected to basically a life-threatening pressure in a pressure chamber, very much like one that he recreated and built in Texas once he came to the United States. Of course, then he wasn't experimenting with it on human beings. For a while, they used dogs, but never, of course, human beings. But he literally wrote the book. I say literally, he wrote the book on medical aviation. They brought that book to the United States, but they took out the sources from that book as to how this research was developed through human experimentation. He also did experimentation on all sorts of other medical issues involving pilots at aviation that were relied on by Hitler and the Nazis during the war, such as what to do with pilots when pilots crashed in the ocean, as the Luftwaffe often did, how to survive potentially in freezing waters or by digesting enormous amounts of salt water, which could be deadly for them. And again, the way he experimented with how to overcome those issues was by subjecting Holocaust victims, people in concentration camps at Dachau and elsewhere, to, for instance, frigid, icy waters until they died, or forcing them to ingest salt water until they died. So he was, these were human guinea pigs for Dr. Hubertus Struggle in Texas, who was honored as a pioneer. Again, just a whole nother branch of this project.
Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. These are heinous crimes against humanity. What's the point in them? Is this purely the dark side of scientific endeavour, or alongside this rocket programme. I know Werner von Braun was experimenting with rockets to go into space before the war. That was his lifelong ambition. Were these medical scientific experiments, were these all part of a broader Nazi ambition to go to space as well, or to conduct ever higher altitude flight, or is this all just about trying to make the war machine more effective at a more traditional level? I think the medical experiments were mainly developed as a way of helping German pilots during the war and had very practical applications, for instance, as I mentioned, with downed airliners. But they transferred very easily to the broader ambitions of the United States to go into space. I think Strughold himself 
also fancied the idea of going to space, not quite to the extent that Werner von Braun did, who was, as you say, you know, this was his lifelong ambition since he was a small kid and he was always the prodigy who was thinking beyond everyone else. Struggle had some of those same ambitions and fantasies, but not quite to that extent. But he profited, certainly career-wise, from tagging along with Werner von Braun in the space program and was able to build his own little medical empire, really, in Texas, in San Antonio. As I said, more than two dozen doctors we brought with them. Three of them, believe it or not, had been tried and acquitted at Nuremberg. So think about that, that you had three German Nazi scientists who were brought up on war crimes charges at Nuremberg were acquitted apparently for a lack of evidence as to their direct involvement, which was also Strugholt's defense all along, that he didn't know about what was going on under the, at these clinics that he ran. They were acquitted. And then they were brought to the United States, which was certainly not known to people in Texas or other places who had any involvement in this program, because the public relations end of this was really masterful on the part of the War Department, because this was supposed to have been a secret program all along, because people realized the implications and the horrible optics if this were to get out for reasons the State Department had made clear all along in arguing against doing this in the first place. But it wasn't easy to hide hundreds and hundreds of men in white lab coats with German accents in Huntsville, Alabama, or in San Antonio, Texas. They kind of stuck out. And this program became public within a matter of months, by late 1945, early 1946. It was known that the United States was bringing Nazi scientists to the country. And what the War Department did was a brilliant bit of bait and switch where they acknowledged this program and embraced it publicly. They would hold photo ops with the German scientists and sometimes their wives who would also be brought over from Germany. In a couple of cases, they were actually their mistresses who would be brought over. And they would have photo ops with photographers and newspapers there to greet the wives as they came off the train, embracing with their husbands. Um, They even put them in one case a whole group photo of about 40 or 50 of them, including Werner von Braun and Arthur Rudolph and Hubertus Struggle, on a postage stamp um, by the late 1940s. They were seen as heroes who, again, were not ardent Nazis. That was always stressed, who were not directly involved, allegedly, in the Nazi war effort, who were sort of Nazis in name only, the story went, and now were helping the United States in this great new effort in the Cold War And as John F. Kennedy would say, beginning in 1960, in the race to the moon against the Russians, and they were, they were central to this effort at the point in 1969 when the U.S. landed on the moon and beat the Russians there. There were photos at NASA in Florida of Werner von Braun being hoisted on the shoulders of other colleagues, presumably most of them Americans, but many of them also Germans, because he was seen as the chief architect of this revolutionary step. So would America have made it to the moon without the scientists? Would they have dominated the race for high-quality, accurate, long-range ICBMs as well, intercontinental ballistic missiles? In essence, I suppose, would America have maintained dominance in the Cold War without these Nazi scientists? Well, that's really the unknowable question, isn't it? Is how much quicker did the United States get to space because of Project Paperclip? There's a uh, vigorous dispute about that to this day. I think most people, most scientific experts would say that certainly 
von Braun with his with his new approach to jet propulsion did bring us to that step more quickly than the United States would have gotten there otherwise. But was it a difference of one year or three years or five years or more? I don't know. I haven't spoken with anyone who can really answer that definitively. And then it becomes a moral question of at what price was it worth it to exploit that technological advantage that they apparently did bring to the United States while working with people who had been deeply involved in, again, the worst genocide in history. That's a difficult moral dilemma. Many people would say that there is no technological innovation that would be worth that price. Others might look at it in a more practical way and say, yes, if there was any benefit at all, we were going to seize that. And I think that's sort of a Rorschach test where people would look at it in very different ways. But what's clear is that, at least in the view of the U.S. policymakers, the top officials from the White House on down through the War Department, they realized the jeopardy of how this looked. They could not sell to the public the idea that these men are going to help us get to the moon more quickly or to space more quickly. And so it's worth working with them, despite whatever they may have done with the Nazis. They knew that they couldn't sell that no matter what. And so it became this whitewashing of their records to make it seem as if these hundreds and hundreds of men, and in a few cases, women, were not, in fact, serious hardcore Nazis, that they were Nazis in name only. And Werner von Braun, especially, you know, just a fascinating character, became really the ultimate Renaissance man in America. I mean, he was not only a hero for the U.S. space program, he got his own show on the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday mornings. He played classical piano at grand Washington parties. He had the ear of U.S. presidents from Truman to Eisenhower to Kennedy on down. He was a scuba diver and a deep sea fisherman. He was a man who seemed he could do no wrong and could do anything. And it was only towards the end of his life, really, that this part of his history began to catch up with him. He gave a fascinating interview with The New Yorker not long after the war, I believe about four or five years later, where he was quite upfront and quite honest about his beliefs, probably jarringly honest, that he believed that whoever was willing to pay for his science, be that Hitler or anyone else, he was willing to do that work in the name of scientific advancement and morality be damned. That was essentially his viewpoint. And that continued for the better part of, let's see, he lived in the U.S. for 30 years until he passed away in the late 1970s. It wasn't until the late 1960s, ironically, right around the time we were about to go to the moon, just about a month before, that it was the East Germans, of course, part of the Soviet bloc at that point, who subpoenaed him for his knowledge about war crimes at Pinamunda and at other places where war crimes had occurred. And the U.S. fought that. He ultimately agreed to give, I believe, a written testimony, answer to written questions without having to go to East Germany to actually testify. But then about 10 years later, there was the creation of the United States of the first Nazi war crimes unit. Finally, 35 years after the end of the war, under pressure from Congress, the Justice Department created this war hunting unit. And Werner von Braun had just died a year or two before that. And I talked to people from my book who said that it was something that they wondered about aloud 
what would happen if Werner von Braun was still alive today, just a year or two later? Would we be going after him? Because Arthur Rudolph, who I did mention, was sort of second in command to him, both in Nazi Germany and in the U.S. space program. The war hunters, the Nazi war hunters did go after Arthur Rudolph, and they confronted him quite vividly with his war crimes, which he didn't deny. He was an early Nazi acolyte, an early fan of Hitler's who read Mein Kampf, who signed on willingly to the Nazi party before that was even necessarily the thing to do in Germany, and profited career-wise from his involvement with von Braun and the space program and this horrible slave labor camps that were used to produce these V-2 rockets. And as a result of his admissions, the Justice Department was able to force him to voluntarily leave the country and return to Germany under threat of prosecution had he not done so. So he was the first, and it turned out the only member of the space program to actually face prosecution or deportation for his war crimes. But there were others also under investigation. In fact, Werner von Braun's brother also came here. Again, not nearly as well known as Werner, but he was also a scientist and he also took part in the space program and came under some scrutiny, but like his brother, lived out his life in the United States. This is one of the greatest achievements in American history, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, which is overcast by this dark shadow of the figures who were involved. How does America deal with this history today? I can only think as statues of Confederate generals are being pulled down across the south of the United States. Is this the next looming controversy that America has to deal with? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the answer is that most people in the U.S. aren't even aware of it. I mean, it may be sort of where our state of mind was regarding Confederate generals 15 or 20 years ago. And if they were forced to think about it, they might look at how we got there quite differently. I tell one story in the book about one of the Nazi hunters, Eli Rosenbaum, who, when he first heard the story about Arthur Rudolph, Werner von Braun's deputy, he began investigating him and was horrified to learn that this guy was not only in the United States, but was a frequently decorated member of the NASA program regarding as it regarded as a top scientist, had won all sorts of awards, was part of all sorts of decorated missions. And he went down to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, Eli Rosenbaum did, because he wanted to look at one of the V-2 rockets that was on display there that were regarded again as a technological marvel. Uh, largely as a result of von Braun, to a lesser extent, Arthur Rudolph. And he was curious about whether the history of the V-2 rocket, not just as a technological marvel and a, a weapon of war, but as a product of slave laborers, was recognized at all. And it was not. There was nothing there about how this was produced, that in fact, tens of thousands of slave laborers had been worked to death, had died of starvation, had died of dysentery, had been hanged from that crane. That part of the story was and to some extent still is unknown. I was going to say, I've been there recently. I don't remember seeing any information about that. And I'm a, a bit of a nitpicker. I'll read every single one of those plaques yes. as I'm walking around there. And as you walk in and you go onto the balcony of the National Air and Space Museum, you have the V1s and the V2s in there alongside these massive feats of American engineering, almost like an evolution, step by step alongside each yes. other. That's a disturbing thought, Eric. Yeah, well, just the fact that these rocket factories existed 
is not well known in the United States. It's more well known in France, where there are many French laborers who died there. In fact, there was an autobiography written by one of the survivors that was quite important in the prosecution of Arthur Rudolph because he told firsthand of just the, the horrors of this place. But the stories of Panamunda or of some of the predecessor slave camps where the rockets were built never really became part of the lore in the way that Auschwitz or Dachau or other camps did. And that may very well have been intentional because Alan Dulles at OSS CIA and the War Department were quite interested in exploiting the machinery and the scientists that they found there. It was not part of the post-war narrative that took hold in the public, at least here in America. Well, Eric, thank you so much for bringing this important history to our attention. Remind us again, where can people read more? Sure. Well, I tell a lot of these stories in my book, The Nazis Next Door, and also my latest book, Return to the Reich, which is about a Holocaust survivor who went to work for the U.S. as a spy, tells also parts of this story. Um, It's about Freddie Mayer, and part of his mission was to go undercover and exploit one of the Nazi weapons factories where Hitler was trying to build one of the high-speed jet that was part of his ultimate secret weapon. And so Freddie Mayer tells some amazing stories in that book of finding out what the Nazis were up to in terms of that war machinery. So Nazis Next Door or Return to the Reich, I'm biased, but I would recommend that to your listeners uh, for further information. Well, we're not going to leave you alone, Eric. We're going to get you back on the podcast to talk about Freddie Mayer soon. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.